Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, March 10th, 2023, the 779th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So we're going to get into some of the news of the world as the global regime collapses. But first, let's get into some news about one of the figures in the global regime actually collapsing. This is from The Hill. McConnell's hospitalization raises questions for GOP's future. 
Senate Republicans found themselves shaken and disoriented Thursday after finding out their leader, Senator Mitch McConnell, was in the hospital after tripping at a private event, raising questions about his health and future leadership of the GOP conference. McConnell, who in January became the longest serving party leader in Senate history, has led the Senate GOP conference since 2005 and has helped guide his colleagues through some of the biggest moments in recent history. The 2008 financial collapse, the near default of the U.S. government in 2011, the fiscal cliff of 2012, the two impeachment trials of former President Trump and the January 6th, 2021 attack on the Capitol. McConnell fell after attending a private dinner at the Waldorf Astoria in Washington and was taken to the hospital by an ambulance and is being treated for a concussion. And that just makes me think that Patrick Gunnels and I should have walked around the entire building until we found the entrance because apparently it's open. The 81-year-old Kentucky senator's sudden absence came only a day after he helped Republicans achieve a big political victory by stampeding Democrats into voting to block a District of Columbia crime bill, and it left some GOP senators feeling unsettled and worried about the future. I'm a huge fan of Mitch McConnell. I think he has the ability to lead a very diverse group of individuals in a way that is masterful, said one GOP senator who requested anonymity to discuss the impact of McConnell's injury on the Senate GOP conference. I think who would be our next leader and what kind of leader would that person be? The senator added. Yeah, I do worry about that. He's always thinking ahead in terms of initiatives. He's thinking about how the players on his team can fit. He's got a knack for that that I don't think you find in many others, the lawmaker said. Why is a Republican senator requesting anonymity to say that? What part of this story isn't prepared for public consumption? Is it the fact that they're thinking about Mitch McConnell's replacement? I mean, what else could it be? Mitch McConnell fell down and hurt himself, and it's sad that he's in the hospital and he is 81, but we're not hearing any reports about a serious injury, a broken hip or something. What exactly is going on with Mitch? Senate Whip Republican John Thune, former Senate GOP Whip John Cornyn and Senate Republican Conference Chairman John Barrasso are viewed as McConnell's three most likely successors, all of them establishment rhinos. Isn't that odd? But there hasn't been any serious discussion of a future Senate GOP leadership race among Republican senators themselves because McConnell has a secure grip on the job and hasn't dropped any hint about planning to retire. He easily defeated former National Republican Senatorial Committee Chairman Rick Scott by a lopsided vote of 37 to 10 when Scott tried to capitalize on Republican disappointment over the 2022 midterm election by challenging McConnell for the top job. Scott, who has feuded with McConnell over party strategy since that race, tweeted on Thursday that he and his wife are keeping the leader and his family in our prayers and wished him a speedy recovery. These Republican senators apparently have not had a chance to talk to Mitch McConnell, according to this article from The Hill, at least not at the point where they were making their comments. Maybe they have by now. What exactly happened? As the day went on, a few other details leaked about the accident. McConnell was at the Waldorf earlier in the evening to attend a reception for the Senate Leadership Fund. 
the super PAC that he is affiliated with and that played a major role in the last election by spending $290 million. The reception was a thank you event for the super PAC supporters and several GOP senators attended. And it's worth noting that the Senate Leadership Fund received at least a million dollars from FTX. I think it was more of a thank you to the people that had helped with the fund in the last election cycle, said Senator Lisa Murkowski. It was a pretty good showing of Republican colleagues. I don't know how many showed up, but it seemed like there was a lot of us. McConnell later attended a small private dinner that a person familiar described as adjacent to the reception. He tripped and fell after that dinner. So get well soon, I guess. Cocaine Mitch. Now, let's get into this next story by listening to some audio of Donald Trump from 2020. Jack Posobiec pointed this out on Twitter and said, flashback, Trump predicted a 1929 style crash if Biden was elected. All of this incredible job that we've done will go down like that. It will be a terrible, terrible sight. It might even be a 1929 situation, so you have a chance to have the greatest numbers in history. You're almost there. We're almost back to where we were from the standpoint of the stock market. Think of that. Uh, but you'll have a crash like you've never seen before. You put the wrong person in office, you'll see things that you would not have believed are possible. I imagine most people in my audience have come to the understanding that when Trump says these things, He's not being hyperbolic. He's not being extreme. He's not making things up. He's not trying to scare people into doing what he wants them to do. He's telling them this is what the future holds because he knows the playbook of the opposition. And the playbook of the opposition is pretty widely available to be known. We talk about it on this show all the time. It's not because I'm some sort of magical wizard at figuring out what's in other people's minds. It's because they tell us constantly. I listen to them. I tell you what they're saying and what I think about it. And then we witness in the world as the things they were telling us they're going to do actually start happening and they produce the results. The regime wants them to produce except when the regime is thwarted, as they are constantly now. When you know what's in the enemy's playbook, then you can form your own playbook. And when you know what's in both playbooks, it's really just a matter of who is able to execute on their plan. And it turns out that the truth and the people are pretty helpful when executing on one of these plans, which is why one of the enemy's key strategies is full narrative control, even if it includes censorship. But Trump, as always, was on to something. This is from Bloomberg this morning. Silicon Valley Bank collapses in biggest failure since 2008. Silicon Valley Bank became the biggest U.S. bank failure in more than a decade after its long-established customer base of tech startups grew worried and yanked deposits. The move by California state regulators to take possession of the lender on Friday and appoint the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, that's the FDIC, receiver, caps a vicious fall for a Silicon Valley stalwart. It's also the second regional lender to fold this week 
after Silvergate Capital Corporation announced it was voluntarily liquidating its bank, spurring a sell-off in bank stocks and concerns that more firms might be headed for closure. The FDIC said that insured depositors would have access to their funds by no later than Monday morning. Uninsured depositors will get a receivership certificate for the remaining amount of their uninsured funds, the regulator said, adding that it doesn't yet know the amount. In announcing the takeover, the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation cited inadequate liquidity and insolvency. So what are you insured up to? $250,000. Is that a lot of money if you're a tech corp? Nope. Problems mounted for the bank, known as SVB, after Peter Thiel's Founders Fund and other high-profile venture capital firms advised their portfolio companies to pull money from the bank. The calls followed parent company SVB Financial Group announcing that it would try to raise more than $2 billion after a significant loss on its portfolio. Receivership typically means a bank's deposits will be assumed by another healthy bank or the FDIC will pay depositors up to the insured limit. The FDIC receivership will end the uncertainty about this particular bank, said Saleh Omarova, a law professor at Cornell University. But I don't think that necessarily itself stops people from feeling less safe if they have some kind of exposure to assets or they hold their own money in banks with similar risk profiles. Bank runs are a lot about psychology, and at this point, it's very rational to be nervous. Now, you might remember the name Saleh Amarova because she was Joe Biden's nominee for comptroller of the currency, and she did not get that job, thank goodness, but she is a blatant avowed communist, and that came out in the hearings. It's strange, isn't it, that Bloomberg goes to her for a quote about this situation. And that is when you remember that Bloomberg is a mouthpiece for the global state. The point of this article from the global state's perspective is to encompass a version of the undeniable reality and then contextualize things in a way that protects the regime's larger interest and the central narrative. SVB was founded in 1983 over a poker game between Bill Biggerstaff and Robert Medeiros, according to a statement from the bank's 20th anniversary. Since its start, the firm has specialized in providing financial services to tech startups. And it's always good to know that a bank got started while gambling. The bank had about $209 billion in total assets and about $175.4 billion in total deposits at the end of last year, the FDIC said on Friday. At the time of closing, the amount of deposits in excess of the insurance limits was undetermined, the regulator said. And again, recognizing that Bloomberg is a propaganda mouthpiece of the global state, it's still worth examining their coverage They've been updating it consistently, and I'll go through a few of the updates. Here's some new comments from Vital Knowledge founder Adam Crisafuli. For the first time in decades, the Fed is confronted with the dual challenge of elevated inflation and relatively severe dislocation in the banking industry. He also says it seems likely the Fed sticks with 25 basis points on 322 as opposed to 50 basis points 
and points to a ceiling no higher than 5.5% for the interest rates. The FDIC could play a larger role, too, should conditions warrant further action. Specifically, in the wake of the financial crisis, the FDIC temporarily broadened deposit insurance, offering unlimited coverage for certain types of accounts. That's a tool that would seem particularly relevant to the present situation. So naturally, they have to try to preserve the system at all costs. Crypto investor Mike Novogratz tweeted that he's, quote, shocked that the Fed is going to let depositors lose money, end quote, on SVB, while noting that his Galaxy Digital Holdings Limited did not bank with the company. He's shocked that people are going to lose money. I guess that would be terrible. I guess the government is going to have to step in and bail everybody out, right? This is Bloomberg's financial editor, Daniel Taub. Whenever a company stumbles, shareholder lawsuits become pretty common. Already this morning, law firms including Faruqi and Faruqi LLP, Shaw Law Firm, Pomerantz LLP, and Gerard Sharp LLP have put out press releases saying they're looking into SVB and that investors who've suffered losses as the bank's shares slumped can contact the firm's attorneys. And here's Maxwell Zeff, a reporter on stocks at Bloomberg. I just got off the phone with Odeon Capital analyst Dick Bove. He says if the government doesn't stabilize the situation, other California banks could be hit by withdrawals. There's got to be definitive government action. And one of the things they have to do is assure people they won't lose money as a result of this Silicon Valley bank takeover. First Republic is down 20 bucks. That's one of the best banks in the United States, but it's in Silicon Valley. It's my assumption the governor of California is on the phone to the FDIC, that these wealthy people are on the phone with people they know in Washington. There's going to be a major effort to salvage this company because there's a lot to salvage there. So you get it? Too big to fail. That's basically what they're all saying. These companies are too big to fail. Too many important people have their money tied up in these banks. And so we have to bail them out and we're going to need American taxpayer money to do it. The government is going to have to step in. And yeah, it sucks that we've sent $200 billion to Ukraine and that Joe Biden just pitched a, what, $6.8 trillion federal budget. But hey, we can't just let these tech startups fail. I mean, what would we do without more pointless tech that's designed to control us? This is from Business Insider today. Big short investor Michael Burry issues a grave warning after Silicon Valley Bank's stock route. It is possible today we found our Enron. Michael Burry has weighed in on Silicon Valley Bank after its parent company's shares plunged 60% in a single day. It is possible today we found our Enron, the big short investor said Thursday in a now deleted tweet referencing the scandal hit energy firm that collapsed during the early 2000s. SVB Financial's stock price collapsed earlier on Thursday after the company said it would sell more shares to cover a $1.8 billion loss it incurred after completing a $21 billion fire sale of its bond portfolio. Burry compared its situation to Enron, which filed for bankruptcy in 2001 after an accounting scandal and is often used by investors as a marker for a staggering fall in a company's stock price. 
Enron collapsed as the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s, with the tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite Index plunging 78% in just over two years. Rising interest rates have hammered SVB's bond portfolio over the past year, with the Federal Reserve's aggressive policy tightening pushing yields on two-year Treasury notes above 5% this week. Bond prices fall when yields rise. The bank's updated investor deck, which was filed Wednesday, showed that the company's $21 billion bond portfolio had a yield of 1.8% and an average duration of just over three years. The three-year U.S. Treasury note yielded 4.5% in early morning trading Friday, meaning prices have plummeted since SVB bought the bonds prior to 2022. SVB Financial is also under pressure because of its business model of lending to venture capital and private tech companies, which tended to cash in their equity stakes through an initial public offering. Stocks entered a bear market in 2022, dampening enthusiasm for public listings and thus fueling a decline in SVB Financial's deposits. Burry has taken a bearish stance on markets over the past few years and has repeatedly warned investors to prepare for a looming crash in stock prices. In January, he warned that the start of year rally was unlikely to last with a one word tweet, sell. So I'm certainly no financial expert, and I'll be interested to see where this goes. But considering the reaction of the regime and this push toward the government making sure nothing bad happens, this seems to be a situation where pretty powerful people are getting pretty nervous. We should also be keeping an eye on what's going on in California in general, because California has a role to play in all this. A couple of weeks ago, they had some weather power outages that lasted far too long, right in the middle of Los Angeles. And earlier in the week, CNN ran this article. Some California residents are urged to prepare two weeks of essentials ahead of expected flooding. Officials in California are imploring residents to prepare for a powerful storm set to lash the region with torrential rain later this week as the state continues to recover from colossal amounts of snow that trapped mountain communities. Previous severe weather was responsible for the death of one person in the San Bernardino Mountains area. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office said the person died in a traffic accident. Other deaths since February 25th don't appear to be weather-related. But investigations are ongoing. Now, you're welcome to call me a conspiracy theorist here. But if we see continued weather events in California that become disastrous weather events to the point where California needs to request government assistance in handling the problem, we should keep a close eye on where that money ends up. You might remember in 2020 when they passed the massive COVID relief packages, and a lot of that money went to shoring up pension deficits in California and Illinois and other Democrat-run states. There's a lot going on here, and one thing you can be certain of is that the powerful members of the regime affected by this are not just going to accept losing all their money. They want government bailouts. And you can't imagine that they care much about how that situation comes to be. 
And speaking of things that make pretty powerful people in the regime very nervous, this is from the Daily Mail yesterday. Xi Jinping has handed historic third term as Chinese president after enacting new law that'll let him rule for life. And you might remember, as I often mention, that in the immediate aftermath of the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan by the illegitimate president, Joe Biden. And by the way, that whole disaster, that explosion at the airport, apparently that could have all been prevented. And that was brought up in testimony before the House of Representatives this week. So just another failure for the fake president. Xi Jinping was handed a third term as Chinese president on Friday, capping a rise that has seen him become the country's most powerful leader in generations. The appointment by China's rubber stamp parliament comes after Xi locked in another five years as head of the Communist Party and the military, the two more significant leadership positions in Chinese politics in October. Since then, 69-year-old Xi has weathered widespread protests over his zero-COVID policy and its subsequent abandonment that saw countless people die. Those issues have been avoided at this week's National People's Congress, a carefully choreographed event that is also set to appoint Xi ally Li Qiang as the new premier. And on Friday, they handed Xi a third term as China's president, the culmination of a remarkable rise in which he has gone from a relatively little-known party apparatchik to the leader of a global superpower. His coronation sets him up to become modern China's longest-serving president and will mean Xi will rule well into his 70s if no other challenger emerges. Adrian Gaijus, co-author of Xi Jinping, The Most Powerful Man in the World, told AFP he did not think she was motivated by a desire for personal enrichment, despite international media investigations having revealed his family's amassed wealth. That's not his interest, Guy just said. He really has a vision about China. He wants to see China as the most powerful country in the world. And the article goes on. So to the media, Xi Jinping's rise, his cementing as president and ultimately the leader of all of China, has them terrified for some reason and talking about protests against his zero COVID policy and how once he stopped that policy, so many people died and they're concerned about how long he's going to be leading China. And maybe those things are concerning, but it's odd, isn't it, that the very same outlets who've been protecting China, Chinese American business relationships, Chinese spies within our colleges and universities, Chinese influence on our culture, China's role in the fentanyl epidemic and all of that. Any criticism of China from the America first side of things is racist against the Chinese. But now, now it's OK to talk about how bad China is and how bad she is. And we can talk about how COVID started in Wuhan and all of this is China's fault. The gloves are off. But hey, what are they worried about? Well, maybe it's this in the New York Times today. Saudi Arabia and Iran agree to reestablish ties in talks hosted by China. Saudi Arabia and Iran have reached an agreement that paves the way for the reestablishment of diplomatic ties after a seven year split. 
in what would be a major realignment between regional rivals that was facilitated by China, the country said on Friday in a joint statement. Saudi and Iranian officials announced the agreement after talks this week in China, which maintains close ties with both countries, according to the statement, which was published by the official Saudi press agency. Iran state news media also announced an agreement. The two countries agreed to reactivate a lapsed security cooperation pact, a shift that comes after years of Iranian proxies targeting Saudi Arabia with missile and drone attacks, as well as older trade, investment and cultural accords. Oh, Iranian proxies attacking Saudi Arabia. So it's not Iran attacking Saudi Arabia. It's proxies like maybe the same people who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. They weren't Ukrainians run by the comedic actor. They were Ukrainian proxies. Remember, good twin, evil twin everywhere. Sovereign nationalists who want their country to be their country not controlled by the West, the global regime, and the global regime itself with their own interests, the evil twin faction in all of these countries. Saudi Arabia and Iran will reopen embassies in each other's countries within two months, and both states confirmed, quote, their respect for the sovereignty of nations and non-interference in their internal affairs, the statement said. And I'm going to read the statement in a second. China's role in hosting the talks that led to a breakthrough in the longstanding regional rivalry highlights the country's growing economic and political importance in the Middle East, a region that was long shaped by the military and diplomatic involvement of the United States. Saudi and Iranian officials had engaged in several rounds of talks over the past two years, including in Iraq and Oman, without significant steps forward. China's top leader, Xi Jinping, visited Riyadh in December, a state visit that was celebrated by Saudi officials who often complain that their American allies are pulling away from the region. And it should be relatively obvious by this point that the allyship of Saudi Arabia with the United States has changed considerably in dynamic. You might remember Donald Trump getting the sword dance while he was in Saudi Arabia and the relationship he had with Mohammed bin Salman, and how the global state propaganda media tried to sour and diminish that relationship with the whole Jamal Khashoggi thing. That is a reflection of China's growing strategic clout in the region, the fact that it has a lot of leverage over the Iranians, the fact that it has very deep and important economic relations with the Saudis, said Mohammed al Hyaya a Saudi fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. There is a strategic void in the region, and the Chinese seem to have figured out how to capitalize on that. Oh, thank goodness for the view from Harvard. China's most senior foreign policy official, Wang Yi, indicated in a statement on the Chinese Foreign Ministry website that Beijing played an instrumental role in the agreement. This is a victory for the dialogue, a victory for peace, and it is major positive news for the world, which is currently so turbulent and restive, and it sends a clear signal, he said. The world is not just the Ukraine issue, and there are many issues bearing on peace and people's well-being that demand the attention of the international community and must be properly addressed by the parties concerned in a timely way. 
After years of tension, Saudi Arabia cut ties with Iran completely in 2016 when protesters stormed the kingdom's embassy in Tehran after Saudi Arabia's execution of a prominent Saudi Shiite cleric. The rivalry between the two Islamic nations, which are less than 150 miles away from each other across the Persian Gulf, has long shaped politics and trade in the Middle East. It has a sectarian dimension. A majority of Saudi Arabia's population is Sunni, while Iran's is overwhelmingly Shiite, but has predominantly played out via proxy conflicts in neighboring Yemen, Iraq and Lebanon, where Iran has supported militias that Saudi officials say have destabilized the region. Tensions hit a peak in 2019 when a missile and drone assault on a key Saudi oil installation briefly disrupted half of the kingdom's crude production. U.S. officials say that Iran had directly overseen the attack. The two countries have also faced off in Yemen, where a Saudi-led coalition is fighting Houthi rebels whom Iran has supported. Saudi officials have also repeatedly expressed fears over Iran's nuclear program saying that they would be the foremost target for the Islamic Republic. But over the past few years, they have been engaged in a series of talks with Iranian delegations, with both sides hoping to ease tensions. China also wants stability in the region, with more than 40 percent of its energy coming from the Gulf, said Jonathan Fulton, a non-resident senior fellow for Middle East programs at the Atlantic Council. Beijing has adopted a smart approach using its strategic partnership diplomacy, building diplomatic capital on both sides of the Gulf, he said. Unlike the United States, which balances one side against the other and is therefore limited in its diplomatic capacity. Ali Shamkani, the head of Iran's Supreme National Security Council, told Iran's Noor News Agency that President Ibrahim Raisi's visit to China in February helped create the opportunity for the negotiations to move forward. Mr. Shamkani described the talks as, quote, unequivocal, transparent, comprehensive and constructive. He said he was looking forward to relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia that foster, quote, the security and stability of the region. The Israeli foreign ministry declined to immediately comment, but the news complicates the Israeli assumption that shared fears of a nuclear Iran would help Israel forge a formal relationship with Saudi Arabia. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, has repeatedly stated in recent months that he hoped to seal diplomatic ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia for the first time. The agreement comes as China has been trying to play a more active role in global governance by releasing a political settlement plan for the war in Ukraine and updating what it calls the Global Security Initiative, a bid to supplant Washington's dominant role in addressing the world's conflicts and crises. Mark Dubowitz, the chief executive of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a Washington-based research institute, described the renewed Iran-Saudi ties resulting from Chinese mediation as, quote, a lose-lose-lose for American interests. That is it right there from the mouth of the global regime, the foundation for the defense of democracies, calls this a lose-lose-lose situation for American interests. And of course, he means the interests of the evil twin faction in America, the global regime. Could it bring peace to the Middle East? Well, hey, maybe.
But that too would be a lose-lose-lose situation for the global regime. He added, it demonstrates that the Saudis don't trust Washington to have their back, that Iran sees an opportunity to peel away American allies to end its international isolation, and that China is becoming the major domo of Middle Eastern power politics. Isn't that amazing? One of our most important strategic allies in Saudi Arabia, quote unquote, does not trust the regime in Washington to have their back. Yet, Trita Parsi, an executive vice president of the Quincy Institute, a Washington research group that advocates U.S. restraint overseas, called the agreement, quote, good news for the Middle East, since Saudi-Iranian tensions have been a driver of instability in the region. And here is the view from the countries involved. This is a joint trilateral statement by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the People's Republic of China. In response to the noble initiative of His Excellency President Xi Jinping, President of the People's Republic of China, of China's support for developing good neighborly relations between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Islamic Republic of Iran. And based on the agreement between His Excellency President Xi Jinping and the leaderships in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Islamic Republic of Iran, whereby the People's Republic of China would host and sponsor talks between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Islamic Republic of Iran, proceeding from their shared desire to resolve the disagreements between them through dialogue and diplomacy, and in light of their brotherly ties, Adhering to the principles and objectives of the Charter of the United Nations and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation and International Conventions and Norms, the delegations from the two countries held talks during the period of the 6th through the 10th of March 2023 in Beijing. The delegation of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia headed by His Excellency Dr. Musad bin Mohammed Al-Aiban, Minister of State, member of the Council of Ministers and National Security Advisor, and the delegation of the Islamic Republic of Iran, headed by His Excellency Admiral Ali Shamkani, Secretary of the Supreme National Security Council of the Islamic Republic of Iran. The Saudi and Iranian sides expressed their appreciation and gratitude to the Republic of Iraq and the Sultanate of Oman for hosting rounds of dialogue that took place between both sides during the years 2021 to 2022. The two sides also expressed their appreciation and gratitude to the leadership and government of the People's Republic of China for hosting and sponsoring the talks and the efforts it placed towards its success. The three countries announced that an agreement has been reached between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Islamic Republic of Iran that includes an agreement to resume diplomatic relations between them and reopen their embassies and missions with a period not exceeding two months. And the agreement includes their affirmation of the respect for the sovereignty of states and the non-interference in international affairs of states. They also agreed that the ministers of foreign affairs of both countries shall meet to implement this, arrange for the return of their ambassadors, and discuss means of enhancing bilateral relations. They also agreed to implement the security cooperation agreement between them. The three countries expressed their keenness to exert all efforts towards enhancing regional and international peace and security. So new bonds are forming between world powers 
leaving the United States out of the negotiations and out of the deal. And at least ostensibly, these agreements that have been reached reaffirm the sovereignty of these nations and non-interference policies when it comes to these nations' relations with other countries. That is what sovereign nations should be doing and should look like in the multipolar world that is emerging. We don't have this globalist regime. The globalist regime is crumbling. And the panic you see from all sides, from the congressman asking reporters for their sources and concerned about reporters telling the public about government censorship programs, for instance, banks collapsing, the failure of the Ukraine war, the failure of the globalists to diminish Xi Jinping's power, the exposure of the United States, or at least the evil twin faction of the global regime in the United States as one of the rogue actors in the world, the problems with pharma and the vaccine, the COVID hoax breaking down, the January 6th very violent insurrection narrative. That seems to be busted beyond all repair. And I would encourage everyone to read Naomi Wolf's article on her Substack, where she issues an apology to all America First supporters for initially believing all of the regime's lies about January 6th and the idea that half of this country were domestic terrorists telling the big lie, trying to overthrow the legitimate government. All of this is destroying the regime and they are absolutely losing their shit. And how does the regime respond when there is too much bad news to possibly ever deal with? Well, they try to throw some red meat to the most deranged, child-brained communists that still remain in our society to this day. Well, there's nothing better than the walls are closing in again. This is from the New York Times yesterday. Prosecutors signal criminal charges for Trump are likely. And this is one hell of an article. There's so much re here that it is worth reading the subheadline. The former president was told that he could appear before a Manhattan grand jury next week if he wishes to testify a strong indication that an indictment could soon follow. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office recently signaled to Donald J. Trump's lawyers that he could face criminal charges for his role in the payment of hush money to a porn star. The strongest indication yet that prosecutors are nearing an indictment of the former president, according to four people with knowledge of the matter. The prosecutors offered Mr. Trump the chance to testify next week before the grand jury that has been hearing evidence in the potential case, the people said. Such offers almost always indicate an indictment is close, almost always indicate that an indictment is close. It would be unusual for the district attorney, Alvin L. Bragg, to notify a potential defendant without ultimately seeking charges against him. So Alvin Bragg invited Trump to testify, and that means that Trump is for sure guilty and going to go to prison forever for this kind of made up story. 
In New York, potential defendants have the right to answer questions in the grand jury before they are indicted, but they rarely testify and Mr. Trump is likely to decline the offer. His lawyers could also meet privately with the prosecutors in hopes of fending off criminal charges. Any case would mark the first indictment of a former American president and could upend the 2024 presidential race. It would also elevate Mr. Bragg to the national stage, though not without risk. Oh, it's going to upend the race completely. I wonder if we'll see a Ron exclamation point announcement right after the Trump indictment. Wouldn't that be such a grand story for the 2024 election? Donald Trump is indicted, but thank goodness Ron exclamation point is here to step in and save the Republican Party. Oh, how the Uniparty would love that. Oh, the Trump supporters, they would be so hurt by Trump's indictment. It would be irresponsible at this point to continue supporting Trump. So there's Ron exclamation point. Let's all support Ron now. Oh, those wily communists. They always know how to get us. Oh, you finally indicted him. We believe you now. Oh, it's so very, very scary. Mr. Trump has faced an array of criminal investigations and special counsel inquiries over the years, but has never been charged with a crime, underscoring the gravity of Mr. Bragg's inquiry. Yeah, he's faced an array of criminal investigations for seven and a half years straight and never been charged with a crime. Isn't that just crazy? Oh, it's because he obstructs all the investigations. Okay, commies. Sure. Sure, that's it. Seven and a half years of constant investigations and absolutely nothing to show for it. And it's because Trump just obstructs too much. Mr. Bragg could become the first prosecutor to charge Trump, but he might not be the last. In Georgia, the Fulton County District Attorney is investigating whether Mr. Trump interfered in the 2020 election. And at the federal level, a special counsel is scrutinizing Mr. Trump's effort to overturn the election results, as well as his handling of classified documents. You get that? That Georgia thing? That grand jury whose foreman was that crazy, creepy little witch? Trump's going to be indicted there. And oh, those federal crimes? Attempting to overturn the safest and most secure election of all time. And that whole documents thing at Mar-a-Lago. Let's just list all those and we will leave it in the minds of our readers to understand that collectively they all pose a major threat to Donald Trump, even though individually they're all totally ridiculous. But do New York Times readers care? Of course not. Why? Because they hate Donald Trump and they hate MAGA and they don't require facts about any of it because it's a hate movement. The Manhattan Inquiry, which has spanned nearly five years, centers on a $130,000 payment to the porn star Stormy Daniels in the final days of the 2016 presidential campaign. The payment was made by Michael Cohen, Mr. Trump's former fixer who was later reimbursed by Mr. Trump from the White House. Mr. Cohen is expected to testify in front of the grand jury, but has not yet done so. Well, that's strange. I thought they were about to indict Donald Trump. They haven't even talked to the attorney yet. 
The district attorney's office has already questioned at least six other people before the grand jury, according to several other people with knowledge of the inquiry. Mr. Bragg's prosecutors have not finished the grand jury presentation, and he could still decide against seeking an indictment. Mr. Trump has previously said that the prosecutors are engaged in a witch hunt against him that began before he became president and has called Mr. Bragg, a Democrat who is black, a politically motivated racist. And of course, he is a politically motivated racist. A spokesman for the district attorney's office declined to comment. Even if Mr. Trump is indicted, convicting him or sending him to prison will be challenging. The case against the former president hinges on an untested and therefore risky legal theory involving a complex interplay of laws, all amounting to a low level felony. If Mr. Trump were ultimately convicted, he would face a maximum sentence of four years, though prison time would not be mandatory. So. This case that is absolutely not a witch hunt hinges on an untested and therefore risky legal theory involving a complex interplay of laws, all amounting to a low level felony. What does a complex interplay of laws mean? What does a untested and therefore risky legal theory mean? It means they are trying to figure out a way to get Trump no matter what. For crimes that not only did he not commit, but crimes that do not, by any recognized legal theory, even exist. And considering they're always trying to take down the same person in this same way, it seems to fit most of the qualifications for the figurative use of witch hunt. Now, I'm not saying they're suggesting Donald Trump is a witch, so it's not literally a witch hunt, but it does fit every other qualification. Mr. Trump's lawyers are sure to attack Mr. Cohen, who in 2018 pleaded guilty to federal charges related to the hush money. The $130,000 payment came during the final stretch of the 2016 presidential campaign, when Ms. Daniels' representatives contacted the National Enquirer to offer exclusive rights to her story about an affair with Mr. Trump. David Pecker, the tabloid's publisher and a longtime ally of Mr. Trump, had agreed to look out for potentially damaging stories about him during the 2016 campaign, and at one point even agreed to buy the story of another woman's affair with Trump and never publish it, a practice known as catch and kill. But Mr. Pecker didn't bite at Miss Daniels' story. Instead, he and the tabloid's top editor, Dylan Howard, helped broker a separate deal between Mr. Cohen and Ms. Daniels' lawyer. Wait, is that Michael Avenatti? Isn't he in prison for fraud now? And doesn't Stormy Daniels owe Donald Trump hundreds of thousands of dollars for creating this entirely false issue? Yeah, that is really what's actually happening in the world. But you see, because Trump paid her hush money, then it's all true. And also Trump committed a crime. Mr. Trump later reimbursed Mr. Cohen through monthly checks. In the federal case against Mr. Cohen, prosecutors said that Mr. Trump's company, quote unquote, falsely accounted for the monthly payments as legal expenses, and that company records cited a retainer agreement with Mr. Cohen. Although Mr. Cohen was a lawyer and became Mr. Trump's personal attorney after he took office, there was no such retainer agreement, and the reimbursement was unrelated to any legal services Mr. Cohen performed. And the New York Times sounds very clear on that being true. 
See, if that wasn't true, then the whole thing would immediately fall apart. But hey, it is the paper of record and they've never gotten anything wrong before. In New York, falsifying business records can amount to a crime, albeit a misdemeanor. To elevate the crime to a felony charge, Mr. Bragg's prosecutors must show that Mr. Trump's, quote, intent to defraud included an intent to commit or conceal a second crime. In this case, that second crime could be a violation of New York state election law. So the first crime isn't a crime unless you combine it with the second crime that he also didn't commit. But if you can put these things together, well, then maybe under an untested and risky legal theory, you could indict Trump. And that's the point of the witch hunt. So that's why all of these disconnected pieces have to be fit together just perfectly. While hush money is not inherently illegal, the prosecutors could argue that the $130,000 payment effectively became an improper donation to Mr. Trump's campaign under the theory that because the money silenced Ms. Daniels, it benefited his candidacy. Except again, Trump didn't do the thing that Ms. Daniels was accusing him of doing. Combining the criminal charge with a violation of state election law would be a novel legal theory for any criminal case, let alone one against the former president, raising the possibility that a judge or appellate court could throw it out or reduce the felony charge to a misdemeanor. So are you understanding that the New York Times' latest the walls are closing in again effort is based on absolutely nothing, and they can't even explain how it would make sense. In fact, they are basically telling their audience there's no way this is going to happen, except weren't you happy when you shared that headline? This is not the first Manhattan grand jury to hear evidence about Mr. Trump. Before leaving office at the end of 2021, Mr. Bragg's predecessor, Cyrus R. Vance Jr., had directed prosecutors to begin presenting evidence to an earlier grand jury. That potential case focused on the former president's business practices, in particular, whether he fraudulently inflated his net worth by billions of dollars in order to secure favorable terms on loans and other benefits. And that didn't work out. But Mr. Bragg, soon after taking office last year, grew concerned about the strength of that case and halted the presentation, prompting two senior prosecutors leading the investigation to resign. Oh, how does it happen? They were the heroes. They just resigned, knowing that they could not achieve justice in their roles. Still, the portion of the investigation concerned with Mr. Trump's net worth is continuing. People with knowledge of the matter said. So see that even the failed get Trump efforts could still succeed. They could. I mean, they could. We're not saying that they will. We're not saying that they would. We're just saying that it's possible. Maybe perhaps that they might that that they could. Defendants rarely choose to testify before a grand jury, and it is highly unlikely that Mr. Trump would do so. As a potential defendant, he would have to waive immunity, meaning that his testimony could be used against him if he were charged. Although he could have a lawyer present in the grand jury to advise him, the lawyer would be prohibited from speaking to the jurors, and there would be few limits on the questions prosecutors could ask the former president. 
In recent years, Mr. Trump has been wary of answering questions under oath, given the legal intrigue swirling around him, and also because he knows it's bullshit and he doesn't have to. Why would any defendant in any case do anything they don't have to do, knowing that the corrupt prosecutors and corrupt court systems will attempt to hold it against them? No one would be advised to do that. And of course, the New York Times claims that because Donald Trump doesn't do it, that's because he's guilty. He's actually scared that the truth might get out. When the New York Attorney General deposed him last year in a civil case, Mr. Trump refused to provide any information, availing himself of his Fifth Amendment right to refuse to answer questions more than 400 times over the course of four hours. If he testifies about the hush money to this grand jury, he will not have that option. Ooh, so dangerous. Trump is in such a catch-22. The walls are closing in again. And Donald Trump released a long statement in response. I did absolutely nothing wrong. I never had an affair with Stormy Daniels, nor would I have wanted to have an affair with Stormy Daniels. This is a political witch hunt, trying to take down the leading candidate by far in the Republican Party, while at the same time also leading all Democrats in the polls, including Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Congress and numerous Democrat district attorneys, attorneys general, and the Department of Injustice itself, which has unprecedentedly placed top DOJ prosecutors into the Manhattan district attorney's office in order to get Trump, have found that I did nothing wrong. Now they fall back on the old and rebuked case, which has been rejected by every prosecutor's office that has looked at this stormy horseface Daniels matter where I relied on counsel in order to resolve this extortion of me, which took place a long time ago. Since then, I have won lawsuits for hundreds of thousands of dollars against Stormy Daniels and every prosecutor's office, which has looked at it, which are numerous, including the FEC, have turned this fake case down. This is not a state case. It is a federal case, and they have all passed on it. Even the previous Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance, did not bring charges because I am guilty of nothing except for the fact that I am beating all Republicans and Democrats badly in the presidential race. It is Russia, 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 Ukraine, 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 the no collusion Mueller hoax and other targeted false attacks against me all over again. It is a weaponization of our judicial system. And I am shocked that this Soros-backed radical left prosecutor who has allowed violent crime to reach new heights in New York without any retribution would consider bringing such a charge against the undisputed frontrunner of one of the two major political parties in our nation. And you got to remember the Ukraine impeachment hoax happened because Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani were investigating Joe Biden's actual business dealings in Ukraine. The media told us that because Joe Biden was going to be the presidential candidate or could be the presidential candidate in 2020, it was out of bounds to investigate him at all and therefore an impeachable offense. Additionally, the statute of limitations has long since ended. And in fact, radical left media one and a half years ago did a countdown on the statute of limitations, which was allowed to expire. The countdown ended. And until now, nobody had any idea it was allowed to continue in this one lowball office. It is appalling 
that Democrats would play this card and only means that they are certain that they cannot win at the voter booth. So they have to go to a tool that has never been used in such a way in our country, weaponized law enforcement. I and hundreds of millions of the American people who are backing me because they want to see our nation be great again are the victims of this corrupt, depraved, and weaponized justice system where Hunter Biden and his father can commit horrendous crimes, all accurately documented on his laptop, and nothing happens. But with me, after looking at 11 million pages worth of documents, they go after a hoax that every other prosecutor's office which reviewed it, and even the U.S. Congress, has long ago dropped. I will not be deterred. I will always continue to be your voice and I will keep fighting for our great country. And naturally, he is right. This is an out and out witch hunt. There is no other way to describe it. It is completely and totally illegitimate. There is no underlying crime. So now they're just trying to invent crimes and then put those crimes together in a way that makes it some sort of prosecutable or indictable offense. Now, I don't know whether or not this story will reach the point of Trump actually being indicted. But if it does, that indictment is going to be as groundless as the rest of it. Do Americans need to see the former president indicted to understand that our country under the illegitimate regime is essentially just a dictatorial banana republic willing to wield the power of the state against its political opponents and their supporters? Maybe we might just have to see that. And if we do, hey, good luck, commies. It's still not going to work. It's been almost eight years now, and none of it has worked because none of it will ever work. It's all based on nothing, and virtually no one believes it anymore. Yes, there's always that tiny little contingent that is going to take this thing all the way to the end, but they're irrelevant. The media couldn't push this stuff over the top in 2016. There's no way it's going to work in 2023 and 2024, especially not after learning that the media has lied about absolutely everything else, including and up to, at this point, January 6th. And just for fun, and to cap that off, at the end of the week, the perfect way to end a Friday, let's go to Pure Unbridled Panic from The New Yorker, this is by Susan B. Glasser yesterday. 2024 Trump is even scarier than 2020 Trump. Oh, baby. I know this is a clickbait headline for communists, but I got to say it's a clickbait headline for me, too. I could not possibly love a headline more than that. 2024 Trump is even scarier than 2020 Trump. It is incredible that they think this stuff makes them look strong and righteous. And now you got to remember as we get into this, these are the very serious intellectuals at the New Yorker. So they are going to speak to you in an intellectual way. They know that what they're communicating is being communicated to other intellectuals who will understand them at a very intellectual level. In politics, as in life, there is a tendency to overcomplicate things. And the simple truth about the 2024 campaign is that, like the two presidential elections that preceded it, the race is all about Donald Trump. 
On the Republican side, no potential candidate has registered in the national polls as anything close to a Trump toppler. And that includes so far the much touted governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. I was reminded of this while listening to the conservative radio host, Hugh Hewitt, interview the former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, the other day. Christie is considering running again for president as a former Trump friend who's seen the light. <laughs> but it's hardly clear whether there is a path for him in the field. Hewitt summed up the state of the Republican electorate as being divided into four categories. Never Trump, sometimes Trump, always Trump, and only Trump. The only Trump category constitutes a more or less immovable 25 to 30 percent of the party, Hewitt said, which is also the estimate he gave for the percentage of Republicans who will never again vote for Trump. Wrong, Hugh. The party, in other words, is stuck in a Trump doom loop. And the primary will come down to a referendum one way or the other on the former president. Oh, there's only one way, Susan B. Glasser of The New Yorker. Why don't you all just accept your fate? Among Democrats who are united at least in their loathing of the ex-POTUS, the Trump factor hangs over the race in a different way. Isn't that amazing? They are totally cognizant of what it is that governs their tiny little child brains. Democrats who are united in their loathing of the ex-POTUS. It is a hate movement. It is only a hate movement. Trump is the boogeyman. QAnon is the boogeyman. Trump supporters are the boogeyman. Science deniers, climate deniers, vaccine deniers, transphobes, homophobes. Islamophobes, blah, blah, blah. They're all the same thing. And they are all embodied in Donald J. Trump. We hate all of those things. We hate Trump. We hate Trump because of all of those things. Therefore, we hate Trump supporters. And you know who else is united in their loathing of the ex-POTUS? All of the rhinos, conservative incorporated, the GOP establishment and elite, and of course, our friends, the DeSantis simps, who are well on their way to earning their lofty positions in the next Lincoln project. Without him running again, it's at least conceivable that Joe Biden might choose at age 80 not to seek reelection. But with Trump as the Republican frontrunner, Biden has positioned himself as an indispensable opponent, the one proven Trump beater. Their fates are intertwined. Once again, it is all about Trump, Trump, Trump. These people are utterly insane. They are going to justify putting Joe Biden back in that position on the basis that Joe Biden has proven he can beat Trump. Except Joe Biden didn't get 81 million real legal American votes. And there's no intelligent person on the planet who believes that is possible. So the most foundational and formative lie of this entire experience is the sole basis for having the demented old racist and pervert serve as the Democrats nominee again. Smart commies, very smart. That is why I urge you to disregard the conventional wisdom about the former president being a spent force in Republican politics and pay much closer attention to what Trump is actually doing and saying in his campaign. 
a doomsday-laden frontal attack on American democracy, far darker and more threatening to the constitutional order than even his two previous bids. Last weekend, in a speech to CPAC that failed to make many front-page headlines, but should have, Trump framed his effort to return to the White House as an outright war and vowed that, once reinstalled in power, his mission would be nothing less than retribution for all the wrongs that he and his grievance-fueled followers have suffered. Speaking for more than an hour and a half in front of a crowd that repeatedly cheered his definition of the presidency as a platform for personalized vengeance, he spoke ominously of enemies and promised to totally obliterate the deep state, among other demons, once victory was attained. Yeah, Susan Glasser, you're damn right he did, and you're damn right we cheered for it, because that is exactly what everyone who has seen the truth of what this regime actually is, wants for their lives and for the country. In fact, it's what we deserve. In fact, it's what we demand. How do you like that, Susan B. Glasser? His call to arms was not merely the stuff of political symbolism. Echoing the inflammatory language with which he summoned his supporters to the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, Trump urged them to fight once again in explicitly end-time terms. And by the way, the language with which he summoned his supporters was... I know you're all planning to peacefully and patriotically march down to the Capitol and make your voices heard. Very threatening. We have no choice, he said. If we don't do this, our country will be lost forever. In case the comparison was lost on anybody, he explicitly extolled the great, great patriots unfairly sitting in jail, recasting the rioters who breached America's own Capitol building as MAGA martyrs. This is the final battle, he insisted. They know it. I know it. You know it. Everybody knows it. This is it. Either they win or we win. And if they win, we no longer have a country. This chilling peroration by Trump followed his December call in a post on his truth social platform for quote unquote termination of the Constitution. If that is what it would take to return him to power, the two statements taken together sum up his campaign like no other. Termination and retribution are the reckless pillars on which Trump is running. Why not finally take him at his word? The fact that you most likely did not watch Trump's rant does not make it any less dangerous. Oh, isn't that amazing? The New York Times writer has learned that if something happens, it is the same whether or not you know about the thing happening. That's incredible. It's funny, actually, because to the child brains in the readership of The New Yorker, that should actually be a red pill because they are constantly told the exact opposite. If you don't pay attention to this thing, it's not real. If anything, it might make it more so. (laughs) The former president in narrow casting his passionate audience of always Trump and only Trump Republican voters is already a changed political figure from a couple of years ago. In the course of that campaign and the four years of rambling rallies that preceded it, I logged hundreds of hours listening to Trump speak to the cheering crowds that he craved. I watched many of them again while co-writing The Divider, a history of Trump in the White House that was published last year. Wait a second. No one knows about your book, Susan B. Glasser, and I doubt that anybody bought it. So did it happen? And it is Already clear that 2024 Trump is far different from 2020 Trump, 
more willing to pronounce extreme beliefs after having become the first American president to seek to overturn an election and still emerging as his party's frontrunner two years later. Oh, hey, what does that say, commies? How's that whole information war going for you? Not very well, huh? To reinforce just how much he meant the threats in his CPAC speech, the Trump campaign later sent out a gritty meme from it as a fundraiser. It showed a black and white photograph of Trump glowering as he pointed at the viewer. I am your retribution, the caption said. Vengeance minded in the best of times, Trump is now outright promising a second term filled with unchecked purges and payback. You couldn't sell it any better to me, Susan B. Glasser. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Historical experience suggests that it would be foolish to disregard this kind of statement by a man who commands such a large and unyielding portion of the electorate. Oh, now you're admitting it. Hey, wait till you figure out it's actually a big majority. Would-be authoritarians like Trump, given a chance to return to power, do not have a record of moderating their views. Look at Israel right now, where the aggrieved Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has managed to win re-election and assemble the most far-right government coalition in that nation's history. Wait a second. Are you criticizing Israel? That's anti-Semitic, Susan B. Glasser. And I'm sure you will say, hey, I'm a Jew. But apparently that doesn't matter. The Anti-Defamation League itself just said this week that warmongers and communists and globalists were essentially the same as Jewish people. I cannot believe that the New Yorker is engaging in outright anti-Semitism. Netanyahu himself under indictment, ooh, it's like the same playbook everywhere, has proposed judicial reforms so sweeping that many consider them nothing less than a quote-unquote judicial coup that would end Israeli democracy as we know it. Are you really going to tell me that nothing's happening and that the regime Sounds confident moving forward. I mean, honestly, give me a break. If you can't see it at this point, I don't know what to tell you. Other rivals in the Republican race, of course, may yet find success in challenging Trump. Many like DeSantis will probably emphasize their credentials as culture warriors attacking woke Democrats and the like. Yeah, because wokeness is the only place that they can pretend to be like Trump without really upsetting the needs of the regime. Others, such as Trump's former U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, and the former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, may come at him as more traditional conservatives, criticizing his inward looking America first platform as isolationist weakness at a time when rivals like China and Russia demand strength. Oh, Kami, you don't understand anything. But it's an extraordinary fact that Trump remains not only the dominant figure of the Republican Party headed into 2024 but one who is still able to set the party's agenda to a remarkable degree. Yeah, in fact, it's the entire agenda that he sets on behalf of his MAGA supporters. That's how it works. That's what a president is supposed to do. He's supposed to reflect the will of the American people and promise to represent their wishes in office. That is what is supposed to happen. Without Trump, it's hard to imagine any other Republicans carrying on about 2020 or about the so-called heroes of January 6th. Most parties like to move on from elections they lost. Yeah, but you see, he didn't lose the election. It was stolen. 
which is why we will never move on. Never, never. And there's not a single candidate who will get MAGA support at all without addressing the 2020 election. If somehow we get Ron exclamation point, you're going to see a third party, I would imagine, because none of us are going to accept Ron exclamation point under those terms. But because of Trump, today's GOP cannot. And his rivals so far are proving to be a timid bunch, all too wary of poking Trump. Faced with voters who overwhelmingly supported Trump's election lies, they kowtow or equivocate as he continues to untruthfully decry the massive fraud of the 2020 election. This does not suggest a party that is on the verge of abandoning its leader for a newer, less controversial figure. And besides, the more crowded the field ultimately gets, the more the gumption or lack thereof of the other candidates may not matter. In a divided party, the only and always Trumpers have more than enough votes to prevail. Well, you got that one right, Susan. For Republicans, the strongest argument that's been advanced against a Trump redo is that of simple electability. The party has lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections, and few believe that Trump, already a two-time popular vote loser, is likely to convince many general election voters to change their minds the third time out. Well, if that's true, Suze, how did he get 20% more votes than he did in 2016? Obviously, it's because he did a good job and convinced people that he did a good job. Anyone with half a brain would know that Joe Biden did not get 81 million real legal American votes and also did not win the popular vote. And there's absolutely no way he could have possibly done that. In that same interview with Hewitt, Christie argued that Trump simply could not win suburban women. And a Republican not winning suburban women can't win the presidency, Christie said. Christie's appeal to the pragmatism of GOP voters may seem eminently reasonable, but that hardly means his logic will prevail. It should be noted that Christie was one of many who believed Trump would not and could not win the Republican nomination in 2016 before eagerly climbing on board Trump's campaign. The point is that we've been here before. Let's not make the mistake once again of failing to take Trump seriously or literally. Today's Republican Party is a lot closer to forever Trump than it is to never again Trump. The revenge play continues. Yes, in fact, that's what it's all about. The retribution is real and it is coming and nothing can stop it. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash imyourmoderator. And I'll see you soon, out on the range.
It's high noon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hot!